Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here today under pristine blue skies, gentle breeze, already t-shirt weather, and I'm in the very secluded valley of Borrowdale, but not that Borrowdale, with author and illustrator Mark Richards. Hello, Mark. Hello, David. Gosh, we're in Westland, Borrowdale. This is a secret valley to many people between the M6 and the A6, but actually, we're going beyond the A6, west of it today. Fascinating. This is pastures new, I think, for both of us, Mark. Uh, You've not been here before. I've been on the ridges that lead above here, lead up towards Grey Crag at the head of Long Sleddle, but not in the valley. And when you say pastures new, these are vast pastures new. This is Texas country, great oceans of space. The valley continues, doesn't it, down to the M6, Mm -hmm. where you can just about see, if you look for it, the entrance to the valley cloaked in a really beautiful ancient oak woodland. It is. Yeah, and that's where the Roman fort is that gives the valley its name. The Valley of the Defended Site, the Roman fort, uh, which was on the main north-south Roman route through the Loon Gorge that headed towards Kirby Thor originally. And it was one of the very earliest Roman roads. There we go, a load of knowledge input in before we've even started the podcast proper. So (laughs) thanks for that, Mark. So today what we're talking about, uh, something very close to your heart, I know, Mark, and also something that Country Stride listeners regularly enjoy. We're talking about hill farming, we're talking about shepherding, and we're talking about this unique agricultural heritage that exists in the lakes and that has shaped our landscapes uh, over many hundreds of years to make the fells and dales that we know today. The look of the fells today is what everybody accepts as the normal. But it's only the normal because it's the agricultural practice that has formed it. Otherwise, it would probably be completely covered in trees. It would be much more scrubby, I think, wouldn't it? And the second strand of today's conversation, we're talking about public perception of that farming. How society thinks about farmers and hill farmers in this upland setting and we're talking about some of the writers Wordsworth, Beatrix Potter to some extent people like Wainwright and then latterly people like James Rebanks and who's our guest today Mark? Oh Dr Terry McCormick who has an intimate knowledge of this particular valley so has had a hands-on experience of what fell farming is about but he has actually studied not just the romantic literature, but the actual practical literature, which tells you how things have progressed over three or four hundred years to lead to where we are today. So we're having a relatively short wander up the valley that we can see now. Very cloistered, very quiet valley. There's some trees up the top and two very isolated farmsteads. I'm looking forward to exploring this territory. Let's go and meet Terry. We've come to a pause after 
parking the cars and leaving the sound of the A6 behind us. And we're going up an open road. The view is absolutely stellar. We've got Swelldale sheep, Fawcett forest with a bit of heather, brown heather, over to our left on the horizon. And the very distinctive shape of High House Bank up to the right with a Leith barn and some farmsteads ahead of us. So it's a great open setting. Now, I'm in the company of Terry, Terry McCormick. Terry, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Where do you come from and what led you to Cumbria? I was trying to complete a PhD and uh, reaching the end of my three-year grant. The PhD was on Wordsworth Poetry in Place and very luckily I managed to get a job at Dove Cottage and then spent the next couple of years working there and completing the PhD. Became a curator, got involved in heritage, creating a new museum and then kind of went through that and emerged and started to run my own business. Um, came to a point of crisis. I had a, another midlife crisis in my 50s. I reached a point where I, I literally didn't know what to do with myself. And I was sitting at the kitchen table with my wife one evening and looking at the Westman Gazette. And there was a job advert for a dry stone waller and shepherd's assistant at Forest Hall Farm. I was already a dry stone waller because we had a six and a half acre intake up above Grasmere and had done all the gapping and I'd learned, I'd done some training with the old agricultural training board. So I was a pretty basic but reasonable dry stone waller. I wasn't going to take this, do this phone call, but my wife said, go on, do it. I rang up, spoke to a man called Stephen Lord, who was the manager of Forest Hall Farm where we're standing now absolutely certain that they would just say we, we don't want you you know and the and uh, the thing I was most worried about actually was my age I was 55 and uh, Stephen did get round to this question he said I hope you don't mind me asking you how old are you and I thought well this is it I've had it now I said oh, I'm 55 oh he said that's fine he said if you were 75 we'd be a bit worried about it but no that's fine so uh, he arranged to meet me and interview me over in Bannersdale, and I had a month's trial, and then they took me on, and I was here for a year and a half. And I was dry stone walling in a 5,000 acre enclosed hill farm. And that is a lot of dry stone walls. That is, that is a serious <laughs> mileage of walling. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I always wanted to work out how many miles there was, and it's just a pretty difficult thing to do. And, but, yeah, you know. and the stone is a particular kind of stone. Oh, it's, it's stubborn and, and gnarly and doesn't take any prisoners. It's quite staggering, isn't it? Yeah. It tells you something, I suppose, about why they needed them. There was a story behind that. Absolutely. I think we, we completely have lost now our sense of how important these boundaries were and how much labour invisible labour has gone into making these field systems. Just around here, there's lambs, which is absolutely fabulous. Before we actually got talking, you were mentioning about this cradling of a lamb. Yeah, that's my uh, complete soft soft side here. Um, because when I was working here, I was mainly a waller, but I obviously jumped in and helped everybody out with the sheep. The thing I, I've taken away with me some years later now is having a lamb in your arms... Even actually, if you're going to castrate them, I'm afraid, <laughs> having a lamb in your arms and smelling the lamb, especially the newborn lambs, and there's something about that which is completely unique and slightly heavenly. And so I've taken that away with me very much. But swales are a gorgeous sheep, actually. They're very sensitive, very skittish. The ewes are very maternal, you know. So I've got very nice memories of working with this. And this is a big swale flock in Ruffell 
sheep country across the road. Farm we've just come by, you know, that's rough-felled sheep. It's a different breed altogether. Can you give us a little bit of a feel for where we're going, what this setting is all about? Because it's one estate, I think. It is, yeah. We're in one valley of the large estate of Forest Hall Farm. It goes up west, right up to the high ridges. The boundaries are on the top, right at the top there. We're going past a farm, Borough Farm here, which was the home of a shepherd called Brian Nevinson, who was my mentor when I was working here, and his dad, Fred Nevinson, before him. Brian used to say to me that summer started in mid-June rather than mid-May here on this farm. It's a tough, tough environment. The road goes on past uh, this farm to a house called High House. And again, I am told that there used to be a family living up there that worked on the estate. Children used to all gather together and come down this lane to catch the school bus here. Right. This was a living place. People used to go and stay up on the fell and do work, you know. With the bothies or a little yeah, little, little bothies, yeah. And they used to go up there and, and stay on there. And the same used to happen, of course, with the wallers. These gangs of men used to come up here onto these higher places and used to stay up for four or five days and camp out and walk, come down and get paid, go off home. And there was just all that invisible labour, like, cannot underestimate what they've done and once you start to work with the walls and you realise what's involved you respect them completely. So we'll continue along this lovely strip of tarmac towards Borahead Farm. We've moved up a little bit further up towards the farm and it gives me an opportunity, Terry, to talk a little bit about particularly what you've been doing in literary terms because you've written a book about fell farming, the practical aspects of it and the literary references, 1750 to the present day, uh, effectively. What's the primary hypothesis you were trying to get to the bottom of? Okay, let me just say that the book uh, came out of a, a lot of anxiety. I was sitting on a panel for the World Heritage Site called the Technical Advisory Group. We were arguing constantly and going round and round in circles about what was the so-called outstanding universal value of the Lake District. And it was like that we had a compass and that we were going from one point to the other all the way around the outside. And I was convinced that where we needed to be was in the compass rose right in the middle. In the middle of that compass rose is fell farming. That is the core of the whole case for World Heritage. But nobody else saw that apart from James Rebanks, who was with me, and my old colleague, Jeff Brown. I then tried to try and work out why didn't anybody get it? What's going on here? Why don't they see it? You know? So basically, I started to go back and look really closely at all the literature, all the accounts of fell farming, all the way through, from Thomas Gray to Wordsworth to Harriet Martineau, you know, all the way through to the present day and worked out what was going on. And what was going on was underpinned on the whole, not completely, but on the whole, by ignorance. Understandable ignorance, because if you don't know about fell farming, you just don't know about it, and then you can have views about it which may or may not be right, but they're usually not quite right. So this very much was begun by Wordsworth, who did wonderful celebrations of fell farming, at the same time as he put out the message that it was on its last legs. The reports of my death are greatly exaggerated. They were greatly exaggerated. So through the 1830s, for example, we had Wordsworth uh, giving this message out, but fell farming was doing pretty well. So we have this disconnect. And in the end, I thought there was a great big dry stone wall 
of incomprehension between all those people writing and thinking about fell farming and fell farming itself. And my job was to actually create a way through that wall in this book. Well, we'll explore all that wonderful panoply of ideas as we go along, but we'll go a bit further up towards the farm now. Is it absolutely idyllic here at the moment? The blackbird's singing, the sky is blue, the world is a wonderful thing. There's, uh, there's a crow in the background. We've just had a moment seeing the farmer who pointed out that he'd just been building a wall, which I think is very appropriate for you, Terry. We've come to the point where we actually see the wall, but he was very proud of what he'd done, Terry. What do you think of his work? Well, actually, he said, oh, I've done a bit of walling, he said, and there are a few faults in it, and you let me know what those faults are. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm looking at the wall here, and I'm thinking, that's pretty, pretty good, isn't it? Because he's got that lovely, uh, all the lines, everything's nicely in place. He's got his through stones in there and the cam stones are all level. You know, it's just a good-looking piece of wall. And in fact, it's better. When you, look, when you see the old wall to the side of it, which was... Uh, Covered in moss. Yeah, and but obviously just a bit kind of cranky because of the age of it, which is fair enough. And you can see how someone can come along and it's not just, oh, I'm repairing a gap. I'm actually restoring something and making it better than it was. That's it. And this is the whole principle of farming. Yeah make it better for the next generation. Now, talking about generations and so forth, we're actually coming to the farmstead itself. There's blossom in the blackthorn in front of it. Now, the existence of this farmstead here, I think is one of the seminal comments that we want to explore today. Perhaps you can give us a sense of why there were farmsteads of this size and stature all over the Lake District, in little pockets of countryside. There weren't big halls, there were farmsteads. That's right. I think one of the things about the Lake District, you'll all know, is that there are no really big stately homes or mansions in the Lake District. Wordsworth used the phrase perfect republic of shepherds, and he meant the word republic at that time as in that way, in a very old-fashioned republican way. No hierarchy, no aristocracy. And uh, this goes back to really key moments in 1619 to 27 when the customary tenure that many of these farmers owned or held their farms under because they had allegiance to the crown and they were going to fight the border wars and those customary tenures were going to be taken away from them in more stable times and basically they just said these customary tenures are ours to hold and we are not going to give them up and they actually took the crown to court about them they had a seven-year struggle, and when you think about it, some of the key leaders were going back and forth from London, depositing papers, making arguments, working with lawyers, and they eventually they won the case. And that meant that in the Lake District, you've got this cluster, big cluster, 200 plus, 300 at the time, it's come down to 200 now about the farms, of owner-occupiers, proud, independent farmers with their own farm and their own land, and that made a huge difference. And in my own background, which is more to do with Wales, you know that when that system didn't exist, farming disappears because the, the large landers come in and buy things up. Everything becomes rented. The Forestry Commission comes along when times are tough and says, can we have all your land? We'll plant it up. And they say, oh, yes. But this moment of the Magna Carta moment, 1690 to 26, is a great moment for Lake District Fell farming. And this farm would have been one of those farms. The Kendall... 
tenants' right dispute had a f sort of impact and a flavour. What would you describe it as? Well, it was a, a tough, torrid battle. The other thing that came through there was a tremendous community solidarity, communal solidarity. I mean, these people would be meeting at markets and at uh, agricultural shows, networking furiously with each other. They actually had a one-for-all, all-for-one rule, mm -hmm. which is the NATO thing, you know, one of us is going to be attacked, we're all going to get in there and, and fight mm -hmm. back. So this was really serious stuff, and it allowed them to uh, establish viability for generations there were dirty tricks going on. At one stage, the legal representatives of the Crown accused the fell farmers meeting in Staveley, uh, I think there were about 70 of them met in Staveley about this dispute, of sedition and illegal activity, and that they were going to bring the full force of Her Majesty's law against these people. Uh, and it actually turned out to be classic intimidation, it didn't come to anything, in fact, and they were outfaced by the Lakeland Yeoman farmers. Well, we've got the scene now of these proud, independent uh, body of farmers who work individually but together. And um, we'll walk a little bit further up the valley. We've just come through a, a gate beside a cattle grid and looking down into the Borrowbeck Valley there is a, a bit of lovely woodland there with tall fencing protecting it from deer I would imagine and any nibbling teeth allowing the coppice and the natural woodland to um, prosper and any healthy valley needs a good woodland in it and obviously Whoever's looking after this is genuinely looking after it. And there's some very stout walls here as well, which is a handsome side. One of the things that your book really delves into is the multitude of convulsions and disruptions that occurred right through this long period from 1750 onwards. Can we go back to the Enclosure Act, for mm. example? Yeah. Well, uh, again, that, that could have been a lot worse in Cumbria than it actually was. In the valley floors, you'll see smaller field systems which are more medieval in origin, where the stone will have been gathered in to make these field systems for the inbuyers around the farms. In the 1820s, 1830s and onwards, the fell itself started to be enclosed. And so when you see in the Lake District, as we often do, these uh, walls going up the sides of fells, big, huge enclosures and intakes, that was the sort of enclosure that was taking place in the 1830s. Now... The fell farmers had a way ingeniously of kind of adapting to this again and actually often buying up some of these enclosures and using them themselves. It wasn't as much of an invasion or as a destruction as it was in other parts of the country. But what it does highlight is the adaptability of fell farming to the circumstances it finds itself in. I have this term in my head is that all fell farming families are lanterns of resilience. So they're always alight with resilience and they've, they've managed that by adapting to frequent shocks throughout the centuries. Enclosures were one of them. Weather events, extreme weather events, often underestimated. Once in every 10 years, they would have something totally devastating in flood terms, in snow terms, in livestock loss terms, disease events. Oh, in wow. the 18th century, thousands of sheep just disappearing from sight before science got involved. So a farmer's life was often looking at and managing 
anything that's coming towards it. And by doing so, they develop this sort of reservoir or innate capacity, which, yeah, the term resilience is appropriate for it. Mm -hmm. And um, they have an enormous amount that we can learn from, I think, from that. And certainly I've learned from it in my involvement. This, of course, went all the way through a good period in the middle of the 19th century, and then the First World War and after the First World War, absolutely diabolical. There are ups and downs of the market, but certainly the 1920s, 1930s, First World War afterwards, that was extremely tough. So in your book, you, you refer to these various ways in which the different farmers refined things and did things in harmony with one another that built that resilience. Yes, yeah, quite right uh, there, because uh, resilience is not something that you sort of cook up in, in the farm kitchen. I mean, it's actually to do with other people and how you work together. And one of the key dates for me is I think 1819, when one of the publication of the first Shepherd's Guide, because that is the community getting together uh, identifying its assets, its sheep, and giving everything uh, a name and allowing the whole of the sheep breeding community to identify what it was doing very, very clearly. And it was a sort of intellectual effort actually to do that uh, kind of cataloguing. And the Shepherd's Guides then went from strength to strength throughout the 19th century. That's with the smit marks yes. and, and um, log marks. Absolutely. I've heard that referred to as rural heraldry. When it came to gathering in, you know, where you'd, because uh, obviously the sheep are on the fell, um, Herdwicks are, are well known for their hefting capacity. In other words, they have a sense of home, a sense of place. They don't go very far. Swaledales are not so good on that front. So every now and again, at these valley heads, you'd have these gatherings where all the lost sheep are put together. Mm-hmm. and everyone's called over and they wouldn't drive around in the Land Rover then they would go over the valley heads and they'd meet, they'd have a, a meal they'd have a drink and they would pick up their sheep as well, gather their sheep and bring them back you're moving into something here which is very coordinated and quite sophisticated and of course then you started to have more the agricultural shows started to build up uh, prizes started to be developed for sheep breeds and they became much more aware of the blood lines in sheep and farmers started to get this new pride about the blood lines and how pure they are and how well cared for they are and of course that reflected back into market value and it's part of an economy and that all started to happen really towards the end of the 18th century and right through into the 19th century so again it's a pet theme but when Wordsworth is kind of going oh dear me (laughs) it's all coming to an end this is all going on this is all going on and it's to do again it's going back to the Magna Carta moment it's the same kind of thing of people getting together High Street alternatively is called Racecourse Hill where they had the shepherds meet and they didn't have quad bikes they had fell ponies and they got around on fell ponies. So they challenged one another to a horse race on the top of the mountain. So all sorts of things went yeah, on. Absolutely. And of course, clipping is the classic, isn't it? Uh, where you'd have clipping days, three or four farms would all get together and just work for each other in their own farms and get through 800 sheep a day, hand clipping. Yes. And of course, the women would work the hardest yes. because they're feeding this lot as they go through. Oh, yes. and, but again, it was just that certain times of the year you got together. My own little story on this is on this fell behind us here, there's a wonderful wall, the watershed wall, right mm-hmm. along the top. And once or twice a year, the farmer from Borodell Farm here would go up to the wall. The farmer from Bannisdale Head Farm would come up from his side and they'd both wall together, both sides of the wall, and they'd have a bit of crack and get a bit of news, what's going on, and just generally catch up. And they would do that shared wall together. 
And, you know, that seems like kind of, that's the way to do it, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Now, if we take this whole story back from where we are, 100 years, that takes you into the Great Depression. That had a a real impact on the farming communities. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, absolutely, as you say, Mark, that this was really serious, this 1920s, 30s Depression. Farms were going out of business, the market dropped, the price of sheep dropped. It was truly a desperate time. Some farms literally turned to poultry rather than uh, disappear altogether. The Levinson farm just here where we're standing, on the side of the fell, uh, Brian was telling me as a kid, all he could see was chickens and chicken sheds and, and taking the eggs down to Kendall to sell the eggs at the market and just to get through. Bear in mind that this is a subsistence money economy where money was in a tin in the farm. Yeah. Very little transactions taking place. People still living in a self-sufficient way. Now, this crisis was picked up on by off-comers so-called from outside, but who actually had a passion for hill farming and for the landscape it represented. Trevelyan was one of them. Jim Trevelyan, the historian, was one of them. Uh, Henry Simmons was another of those as well. And uh, they started to go around and actually started a trust to buy some of the farms that were endangered. And they built up a network of these endangered farms uh, and then concurrently they started to try and get the National Trust interested. And so you have the National Trust coming in to acquire these farms and of course the most well-known acquirer of farms uh, was Beatrix Potter in the 1920s and 30s who was using her wealth from her writing to go off and buy up farms and then give them to the National Trust and say now you've got to do this I'll leave these to you and this is the bequest. Often the bequest was you must keep the Herdwick flock on this farm. And you just then got a, a kind of a big lifeboat in the end for fell farming that took it through into the Second World War and beyond. Now, I call that the friendship community, and it was a network of people who gathered around a stricken fell farming community and put their shoulder to the wheel and, and helped them. And it got them through that really bad patch. And, of course, that legacy has carried on. The National Trust now owns 90 farms, and so there are 90 farming families that are have tendencies of the National Trust and uh, my own view is that if that hadn't happened I, the majority of those farms may not exist uh, in the way they do now as working farms so it's just a fantastic contribution and that kind of took the fell farming community through to the 60s late 60s where they're bumping along before we get to another phase of the story which is much more to do with market economics and uh, the ruthlessness of a kind of free market system. It's lovely we just come over a little bit of a brow, and ahead of us, Terry, there's a flock of swelldells with their lambs just oh, yes. going away, as if they're being guided by nature oh, as yes. a group. It's a, yes. it's a family outing, oh. and we're just above us, there's a, a barn, and I think you were mentioning yeah, that's where they did the shearing. Yes, we did. Yeah, yep. uh, on the banks of High House Bank. Yeah. And the hawthorn is just coming out into leaf, whereas further down at Kendall, is all in full bloom. This is a different climate here, isn't it? It is. It's a winter raiment still. Wow, what a lovely spot. Now, let's get back to the storyline. Um, you're talking about the period of, sort of the 1960s onwards. So, I think 
there were underlying problems with respect to the kind of economic viability of hill farms at the time. Sheep weren't just gathering in enough income to keep farming going. One of the ways that help was brought to that was something called the hedge payments. Farmer would get so much per sheep. Unfortunately, that did lead to overstocking because you can understand why. The more sheep mm. you had, the more right. payments you got. And that went on, I'm not sure the exact number of years, but about 10 years plus. And of course, it really raised the antennae of all the ecologists and the people concerned about the diversity of habitats, worrying that this overstocking was going to completely sort of desertify uh, the fells. That then brought into play a whole new movement uh, a kind of ecological movement. This was in the mid-60s to late 60s, which became anti-farming on that basis. And that set up a kind of polarised discussion which lasted for, frankly, about another... Well, certainly until foot and mouth and beyond. Mm-hmm. That's 30, 40 years later. And it was very polarised and uh, farmers themselves were just a bit kind of baffled about why there was so much antagonism towards them. And, and then the ecologists were kind of thought that all we have to do is get rid of all these sheep and everything is going to be sort of Edenic again and you know that was one theme going all the way through and of course Thatcher economics where everything is the marketplace and you know was not necessarily a good situation for fell farmers. We got linked into a fell farming group in France actually as part of our work. They did something which is kind of never happened in Britain which is actually they all got together at the beginning of the year and they fixed the price on their sheep and it just stuck <laughs> and they knew they were going to get that price whereas of course if you're a farmer here and you, and you don't know what's going to happen you're going to take your sheep to market the price has gone right down there was no control at all now I'm not saying we should go the French model but they were teaching us something that something wasn't right there the sense of crisis was there all the way through and then really became dramatic with foot and mouth disease mm. which was absolute catastrophe in farming terms and brought if you like uh, almost reminds me a bit of what's been happening with the pandemic it sort of brought so many strands of you know what's been going wrong into one series of events and the anguish all the breeding lines that were lost one of the great things that jeff rounded with the herdwick sheep breeding society was they actually had to go out and get DNA from the Herdwicks, sort of bottled, as it were, because foot of mouth was roaring through. And they just thought, we're going to lose all the Herdwick flocks. And actually now you think, my God, if we didn't have Herdwicks, you know, uh, swales, yes, but there's swales in other parts of the country, but Herdwicks only here. That's how desperate things were. Now, you've summed it up, all those periods of convulsions, of adaptation, of coping and community. Our next story, which I'll pick up as we go up to High House Farm itself at the head of the valley, we'll pick up the literature and the way people have been led to think about all those storylines. We've reached the wonderful whitewashed cottage, which is High House Farm. I was, you can see the barn adjacent and the sheep pens and the Swaledale ewes making a comment because they're all gathered together. They ushered themselves ahead of us, didn't they, Terry? You can see this lovely extension to the planting on that uh, south side of the valley. In uh, another 50 years, that would be a wonderful, rich, wooded slope over there. Now, our story, which is now moved into that literary aspect 
where we see how people have perceived things. Um, we'll go to Thomas Gray, first of all. Mm, yeah, uh, so Thomas Gray, 1769, going through Keswick, terrified by the jaws of Borrowdale, shivering in the bottom of his coach as he went through because it was so awful, awesome in the sense of awful, and uh, then comes to Grasmere. And there's a great description in his journal, which is of actually a farmed landscape. And it's a celebration of a farm landscape, and it's kind of a benchmark. That description was one of Wordsworth's favourite go-to descriptions. He often went back and referred to Gray, especially when he got curmudgeonly and grumpy later on when things weren't right. What would Thomas Gray have said, you know, of this? And so on, he always referred to, to Gray. But then Wordsworth, in a sense, took on that uh, mantle himself, and one of the things that hit me between the eyes was his poem, The Brothers, which is based in Ennerdale, uh, written in 1800, just as he'd arrived in the Lake District, is all about the tragic loss of a farming family, the Eubanks, generations of family who'd all disappeared, all gone, and what a sad sort of story it was. That's a very simple version of it. I took this for granted, and then when I started to look at this more closely, I just don't know why, but I had this twinge, and I said, oh, what was the actual farm? I looked up the farm, my house, okay, I followed it through. I discovered that my house was a really successful working farm that carried on working through the 19th century. You go to Ennerdale Churchyard, you see these wonderful great big tombstones with all the family members, the Flemings, all on there. And now it's a National Trust farm. And I thought, well, this is very strange where you should uh, make that farm into something which illustrates the point you want to make. Now, Wordsworth was doing that a lot. And he was doing it with Michael especially, the other poem, a great poem of 1800. Now, you can say, that's fine, he's creative, he's doing his own thing, he's got the creative liberty to do that. But to me, that is corrosive, and it's actually diminishing. Mm. It's not accurate. Most listeners or readers, they're probably reading from away, they don't know anything else. Wordsworth is an expert as far as they're concerned, and they're just taking this full on. So they're taking that in. Now, that's a lot of readers over time. And uh, that goes all the way through there because Wordsworth then becomes this, himself becomes the touchstone of truth and of vision for Lake District Fell Farming, even though he was uh, convinced apparently that it was about to disappear. That was taken up in various ways. Um, Harriet Martineau, for example, in the 1840s, a big great supporter of Wordsworth, but she wanted to reform farming completely. She said they were all alcoholics. She was slanderous, essentially, towards them. I don't understand why exactly. Other writers started to come through. William Green in 1819 was the first really good faithful record of fell farming. And then moving into the late 1860s, 70s, uh, Collingwood and people started to pick up and it started to rebalance a bit. But all the way through, Wordsworth is the sort of god of all this. Again, one of the phrases which I can't get round, I keep going back to it, is Matthew Arnold, who was the first great interpreter of Wordsworth, did a selection of Wordsworth, which had a great influence on how people read him. One of his phrases when Wordsworth died was, he said, the places which recall him will survive. So in other words, the places of the Lake District are important because they're associated with Wordsworth. And I immediately looked at it and thought, well, you're missing generations and generations of contribution from farming families that made those places which allowed Wordsworth to celebrate them in the way he did, completely missing them. And that was the theme all the way through the 19th century. So now we're actually going into a new golden age of which Canon Hardwick Rawnsley and, of course, Beatrix Potter are brilliant exponents. Yes. No, we, we started to get a counterbalancing 
a group of people, or tradition really, uh, Callum Rawnsley kicking it off with great writing about fell farming, very sympathetic, almost sacramental religious because of his own background. Callum Rawnsley was a kind of mentor to Beatrix Potter. She uh, adored him uh, and learnt a lot from him and took many of his ideas into her own life and writing. Beatrix Potter, of course, had already, by the time she got involved in Nature Street Farming, had already written all her bestsellers. There's one particular book which isn't a bestseller particularly, it's called The Fairy Caravan. Fairy spelt with an E. And there's a chapter in there called Sheep. And if you want to know the real Beatrix Potter in terms of her later passion, that's the chapter to read. And it's a celebration of Herdwick Sheep. That reveals her passion and why, what drove her to acquire all the farms and turn everything into practical action. And then we go into this sort of warped, adventurous phase, a different slant on the whole thing again. Absolutely. So one of the things that struck me when I was looking at this was that I don't think Beatrix Potter and Arthur Ransom met, even though they were just a few miles apart at the same time. And Arthur Ransom, as you know, Soros Amazons was just like the Beatles, you know. It just took off like a tsunami, overtook everybody, massive sales, went into the millions by the 1950s, 1960s, total phenomena. And of course, it was all based upon happy, childlike uh, utopia. And you can understand why in the 30s, you know, the gloom was descending, the war was coming up, and here, uh, Arthur Ransom was giving you something to kind of just enjoy and just to rest in. But actually, just took over everything else. So most of Beatrix Potter's work in the 30s, you know, Arthur Ransom just took that over completely uh, in terms of popularity. And so we've had these extreme phases of popularity before. The other book, which uh, I I go back to a lot, is a book called Robert Ellesmere by Mrs Humphrey Ward, going back a bit, 1890. The first part of that is just a wonderful exploration and celebration of the meaning of fell farming. That was a bestseller in America and England. Millions, million plus in both countries. No one's heard of it. If you get your Robert Ellesmere out of your local library, you'll probably see a stamp mark 1953 as the last reader. It's one of the greatest celebrations of fell farming there is. Again, great at the time, forgotten. Moving on with Arthur Ransom, there's another writer there that was buried by Arthur Ransom. She's called uh, Marjorie Lloyd. Marjorie Lloyd's, yeah, she was in the, the Ransom tradition and she was popular in that way with fell farming holidays. Fell farmers go camping and all the rest of it, and good, good fun. But she stepped back at one stage and she wrote this book, which I challenge you to get hold of a copy because you won't find it anywhere. You'll have to pay a lot of money to get hold of a copy. And it's called The Farm at Manistang. It is a gem. It's a gem of spirituality and practicality and poetry all kind of coming together through the life of one farming family in one year in Malastang. It's just a gorgeous little book. No one's heard of that. That's gone. Well, we've got this body of literature, lost literature. One figure from sort of my generation, because it's somebody who greatly influenced me, is Alfred Wainwright. Where does he fit into this story? Uh, he's a bit like a, the Arthur Ransom story, really. And it became the, it became the lens through which everybody experienced the Lake District. And he hardly ever recognised the contribution of fell farming. You'll see a photograph in one of his books with a fell farm in. The drawing, the farm has disappeared. I mean, there's something weird going on whereby he doesn't see the farms. Uh, his references to sheep are very few and far between. They're quite sweet where they're made. You know, they're sweet little things. The sheep, they bounce around. But... It's just this huge popular literature about the Lake District and hardly any references at all 
to fell farming. That, of course, took us right through into the 60s and 70s and it influenced generations. So you'd be across the table in meetings in 2000 plus talking to officers, you know, in various agencies, United Utilities, National Park, National Trust. They're all brought up on Wainwright. You know, that's the view they have of the Lake District. So we must never underestimate the power of literature, the insidious power of literature, where it actually takes over and, and defines the way people look at everything. And so when it comes to policymakers or people developing policy for land management or for the keepers of the land, that is infiltrating policymaking. So further down the, the sort of policy line, if you like, there are policies being made which work on the basis that fell farming is hardly there, doesn't really need to be given a prominent role, needs to be managed in some way, and there's a big vacuum there, it's a space. Well, we've reached the end of this track. We've not quite got the end of that story, because I think we'll head back, and I'd really like to get your feel for somebody who has been an impact on many of our listeners and many readers uh, in our current age, James Rebanks. Well, we actually backtracked here. We've come back to that little gate underneath High House Bank, which grows above you from here. Resurgence of woodland. That's what farming is now, resurgence. And that's our conversation in many respects. But reaching out in celebration of it, the pastoral landscape, is very much a vogue thing at the moment. And there's a lot of writers, of which right at the head of the pack at the moment is James Rebanks. There are people like Alison O'Neill and Hannah Jackson, these are people who are at different levels reaching out to different stratums of people who are wanting to understand what this magic is in real life terms. Yeah, no, that's how I see this. I, I Somehow I've got a view of somebody living in an urban bedsit somewhere, reading these books and just going, wow, this is everything that I haven't got. It's everything that I need. I get to that and I go, wonderful, keep reading, just keep enjoying. And then I kind of think, well, how are you going to move from that so that that becomes something tangible and sustainable and real for them and for us in the future? And I don't have the answer to that because it's too early days, isn't it? But there's something happening. Oh, as Bob Lewis says, there's something happening here, but you don't know what it is, do you, Mr Jones? And we don't know yet what's going to come out of that. My fear is that it might be a transient social media storm which will run through and then everything will be quiet ever after. Or some of the messages will stick. Certainly some of the messages from James's recent book are going to stick and resonate with people already. Um, when it comes down to it, we're talking about keepers of the land. How does this get through to the keepers of the land? How do you open up keeping of the land to all these people who feel dispossessed, alienated, separate from all of it? Uh, a few years back, we all of us had a dream that we would actually bring more young people into shepherding that there'll be more young people in the fells learning how to take care of sheep because actually it's a people-based business. And wouldn't that be wonderful for all these people to, to learn uh, the skills and do them? Now, that is a dream because will it come to pass? I don't know. I used to get phone calls from people saying, how do I work on a hill farm? I want to work on a hill farm, you know. And so this is something that's very strong out there, but we haven't found a way of, other than through media and TV programmes or um, books, of sort of transmitting it, we, we also need to somehow move that into a realm of action 
and participation. And here we have on the doorstep of James Rebanks, Newton Rigg, a college that actually, when I was young, I wanted to go yeah. to. Newton Rigg is fundamental to that continuity. Yeah. Where's it gone wrong? Uh, well, <coughs> yeah, no, that's a big question. I mean, I've, uh, at one stage I was putting applications in on behalf of Newton Rigg for a new kind of future for Newton Rigg, so I have been quite close to that, and I know Andrew well and offered every help I could to him in his fight to try and keep that place open. It is a tragedy. I don't get it. I don't understand it. I can't comprehend why that could happen. The main reason it actually did happen was this business of local ownership disappearing because it was produced originally by Cumbria County Council and all the local authorities who had a vested interest in taking care of their community. And then somehow when it was brought up by, well, first of all, it was Preston, wasn't it? And then it went over to Askham Bryan. And uh, it was so much harder to defend. But yeah, it's a tragic, tragic loss. Out of the pyres of it, something must happen. It's almost like, can you bring World Heritage inscription to bear on something like that issue? If World Heritage inscription is championing farming at the centre of it all then somehow that needs to be brought to bear on keeping that college going we'll pause there a moment there terry uh, we'll go and help brian mason uh, coming up on his quad bike i'll quickly open the gate for him Well, we've passed the farm, we've come more or less to the end of the walk, and it's a great opportunity to talk a little about yourself, Terry. Um, have you three books that you feel resonate most strongly your perspective on the farming scene? Yeah, I do. I, um, they all happen to be ones that are almost forgotten in the tradition. Um, Robert Ellesmere by Mrs Humphrey Ward. Now, there's a book the first part of it especially about Catherine Leyburn who is essentially a goddess of hill farming or a spirit of place all mixed into one and she's just wonderful if you read that first part you'll fall in love with Catherine Leyburn so I do strongly recommend that uh, the other book I, I love again very little read hard to get hold of uh, The Farm at Malastang by uh, Marjorie Lloyd the other book I like a lot is uh, Below Scarfell by Dudley Hoyes. He was a guy who served in two world wars and landed up at the top of Estelle farming in his late years and just writes superbly about all aspects of farming. Maintaining watercourses, dry stone walling, sheep stock rearing, family, kinship, the whole thing. Great book. So I've gone for those rather than the more immediate sort of contemporary ones that are hitting us in the face at the moment. And I think those deserve to be read more widely. I love them. That's a fascinating selection of books. Particularly the Malastown one, that'll intrigue me because I've got family roots up that way. Okay. Now, looking again at your particular involvement with farming, what has that actually given you? Yeah, I'm just thinking as part of our discussion here now that in a way I'm like one of those people in that urban bedsit, you know, looking in and thinking, I want to do this, you know, this, what's going on? I, I need to do this. Now, obviously, I was living in Kendall. I started doing it when I was 55, which is really quite late. And uh, the overwhelming feeling when I got into it was I have come home. I feel at home doing this and I'd kind of finally arrived. Something in me just went, that's okay then, I can relax now, this is it. At the core of this is just the, the, the issue of craft and doing things which are... Uh, enduring? Enduring, 
more than beautiful, actually. Mm. I always say about dry stone walling, aim for beauty, settle for strength. And the strength means a lot. So when you've done a piece of walling to me, and I think it's going to be there for 100 years, I'm okay with that. I can walk away and think I've done something. And actually, I love the idea of these invisible traces being left of work that's been done not by me, but by thousands and hundreds of thousands of people over the years. So I feel proud to be part of that. You spent a good deal of time actually with farmers. Mm. Is this something you particularly learnt from them? I think there's a sort of egalitarianism about the work. Um, You know, there's basically no bullshit. It's all about what you do, the work you do, the quality of the work you do, whether your stock are good or whether your walls are good, or how you've managed that job. Is it tidy or isn't it tidy? And I just love that kind of, let's drop all this stuff about status, drop all this stuff about what you're earning. Just think about the work at hand and the quality of it. I think that comes through really strongly. Apart also, I have to say that I'd spent a, a lifetime working in museums and um, it was a relief to work with farming men. When I got here, it was just a, I was taken care of. They were great and uh, just comradeship. And, uh, you know, that st- stayed with me. It's a society that you don't yeah. get anywhere else in life. No, that's right. And also, uh, I, what I found was that I had a warm welcome. You know, once I started working and I was just, I was kind of in, you know, and then no one thought, oh, you're, you're a strange bod, you're, wherever you come from or anything, you just get on with it and, yeah. you know, have conversations like we've had today with Richard Mason there and other places in these valleys and the farmer would stop, park, park the quad bike, you'd have a bit of crack and carry on and then when I was interviewing farmers, I was taken in, you know, late evening bacon butties, tea, sit down, you know, embrace you, warm embrace. Lovely, lovely people. From all that perspective you've given us, Terry, what position do you think farming in Cumbria is now, after, you know, the World Heritage Site's been put in place? Where is it now? I have this phrase for myself, so it's a personal statement. I mean, it's willed optimism. Sometimes things are tough and uh, corrosive and really the weather's not good. But basically, you have to have willed optimism. Now, it's easier to have willed optimism at the moment in hill farming than it was in the 1960s, 70s, and even just after foot and mouth, when everything seemed to be coming to an end, and farmers were in tears nearly all the time. And I think with the World Heritage Site inscription, something has been put there into almost like legal status, or written in stone, or whatever phrase you want to use, which actually everybody involved with management of land can go back to that and sort of measure what they're doing against it it's about the best position we could ever hope for really and i think the other thing i would say is endless faith in the ingenuity and creativity of generations coming through so the more succession succession is key the more succession is possible in other words farms can be handed on to their children and the children can think of staying in them the more likely it is we are to get really hybrid inventions of farming which are sustainable for the future so i guess that i'm optimistic journey's end and we're back at the car in the middle of Borrowdale here. We've had a delightful three mile, no more than that, wander there and back to the last dwelling in this loneliest of valleys. 
And it's been quite a magic morning, really, Mark. I felt amazed by the uh, insight Terry gave us and the fact that he was so involved with bringing home and focusing in what the Lake District's all about over the years and how important farming has been and that was instrumental in getting the World Heritage Site designation defined specifically around that heritage of farming. Great to get that sweep of history that he spent so much time looking into. But also, even more fascinating for me is how the literature of Lakeland has shaped public perceptions, uh, often in not particularly positive ways, which has these real-life consequences. And, um, you know, also interesting to see that we're almost going full circle here with this generation of writers who are also farmers, like James Rebanks, and this argument perhaps that we've, we've never had it better in terms of a, a more reflective literature. Yeah, it's far more balanced view is coming out now because the voice is not just coming from the nostalgic or romantic aspect, mm. but the real people who are living the life. Absolutely fascinating. And it, it's worth also saying about this valley, we've been lucky today, this is not open access land. Uh, there aren't any public footpaths up here. You can follow the ridges around and look in, but it, it's pure magic, really. Beautiful oak woodland here and lots of new planting, which always makes me happy. Lovely little winding back, and on this gorgeous springtime morning, it doesn't get better, does it? No. Terry's book, which I highly recommend, is Terry McCormick. Lake District Fell Farming, Historical and Literary Perspectives, 1750 to 2017. And you can buy that from our good friends at Bookcase, Steve Matthews and his enthusiasm for all things Cumbrian. Our usual housekeeping. You can find photos from today's walk and 52 previous episodes at www.countrystride.co.uk. We are on social media, Mark. Oh, at Countrystride1 on Facebook and Twitter. Join us there for our um, regular updates and photos from the fells. If you enjoy the podcast, please do give us a five-star review on your podcast provider of choice. We always appreciate hearing that you enjoy what we do. For now, from Borrowdale, under crystal blue skies, we're saying thank you and goodbye for now.